So um, as proud parents, um, we like inserting our random pictures of our kids, just <laughs> even if it has nothing to do with the talk. <laughs> so here are our kids. <laughs> um, I think we need to stand here for the Moisito recording. Moisito is three, Alethia is one, um, and um, I might make a comment at the very end of the talk about how they have something to do with this. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're really just really excited to talk about the Catholic Church's uh, social teaching on immigration. Um, I'm an immigration attorney. I've been practicing for 10 years now. Um, and um, Sarah has also been helping with the practice as well. We have Bridget also, who also works with us. Um, and um, we're just very excited to share, um, A, the ch church's social teaching on this, B, a little bit of our kind of experience uh, working with immigrants and the different issues um, that come with that. Um, and also, C, hopefully, maybe tie it into how there's like this really, really big picture um, uh, that's part of the social social teaching that's really all about um, really the gospel. Uh, there's some really good news in that. Um, so I'm just going to kind of give a little bit of an overview on what we're going to cover. Uh, I'm going to start... Uh, next slide, please. Oh, yeah, so the title is of a, a Catholic Church's Social Teaching on Immigration, A Balanced Approach. Um, and yeah, so that's why we wanted the PowerPoint. <laughs> um, we're going to cover three topics where we are now, um, a little bit of the legal landscape, um, what are some of the push and pull factors that have to do with um, immigration that affect immigration, um, and then we're also going to talk about um, the church's social teaching. Um, and then we're going to finish off with what could, what could be the path forward, what could, be, what could the future look like in terms of immigration, um, whether that be immigration reform or just the, uh, immigration in general. Um, and uh, so I, we wanted to start, uh, Sarah's going to share a story um, about um, a real life story of an asylum that uh, we had the opportunity to work with. So we've changed the names in this story to protect the client's privacy, um, but the facts of the story are all the same. Um, so we serve a lot of clients who flee violence in El Salvador. Right now, the landscape in El Salvador is very overrun by gangs. There are two main gangs that are pretty much overtaking the country, the MS-13 and the Barrio 18. And a lot of people who are strong Catholics or strong Christians, people of upright moral values who don't want to participate in the gangs, they get targeted. Um, especially young people who don't want to join the gangs or anyone who chooses not to participate. So um, we served a woman named Maria who fled here because she and her husband um, told the gangs that they were not going to participate in giving them rides to do their criminal activities. So the gangs took Maria and her husband, shoved them into a car, drove them to a back alley, um, put a gun to Maria's head, made her watch her husband be murdered in front of her, and then took off, leaving her. Um, a widow with a young baby who was at home with her mom. Um, and then the gangs proceeded to imprison Maria and her mom and baby in their home for several days um, because the gangs knew that they were witnesses of the crime and could report them. Um, so. Maria and her mom and her daughter all fled to the United States, fearing for their lives, um, seeking asylum here in the United States. So asylum is 
a provision that um, is an international law. It's not just the United States, um, but it's for people who are fleeing persecution in their home countries. Um, so Maria was here uh, seeking asylum, her mother and her daughter. Her mother was sent back to El Salvador, um, preliminarily was told that she didn't have a legitimate asylum claim, and so she couldn't stay. So she was sent back. Um, she didn't go back to her own home because she was too afraid that the gangs would find her. So she went to a friend's home about two hours from where she lived. The gang still found her there, left a horrendous death threat letter outside the door. Um, so she came back to the United States seeking asylum a second time. And then they came to us and said, can you help us with our asylum claim? So um, their case was in immigration court. We went before the judge and presented witnesses and expert testimony showing why Maria and her mother and daughter should not be sent back to El Salvador, how their lives would be at risk if they were to return. And praise God, the judge granted their case and they are here to stay safely. Thank you, Lord. Um, so that's just a little insight into one of the hundreds of cases that we take on in our office. Um, the main things that we do, just to give you a little bigger picture, um, we do a lot of asylum cases. The majority are from El Salvador, but we have a number from Honduras, from Guatemala. Right now, those are some of the um, countries in what's called the Central American Triangle that are the most persecuted and many people are fleeing here just because of the dangerous situation that is taking place in those countries due to the gang violence. But we also have people from Syria, from the Middle East, also coming here and seeking asylum because they cannot live safely in their home country. Um, so asylum is a huge portion of what we do, but we also do family-based immigration. So people who are here in the United States, um, United States residents or citizens, and they marry an immigrant who does not have status. Um, so they could be faced with having their family separated um, but we're able to help a lot of these families um, to bring their undocumented rel relative um, to a place of legalization so that their families can remain here without being separated. That's another huge portion of what we do. Um, and we also help a lot of undocumented victims of crime. So people who, who are here in the United States who don't have documented status, um, but if they've been a victim of crime here in the United States and report that crime to law enforcement, there's a special visa available to them to help encourage anyone, whether they're documented or undocumented, to report crimes to the police so that crimes are not going unreported and criminals are not running around doing the crimes over and over again. So those are just three areas. We do others, but those are our main, our main three that we work on. Um, and we see our job as both a job and a ministry because the people that we serve, many of them are very hurting, they've suffered a lot. Um, and so we just bring a lot of prayer into our job and <laughs> ask the Lord to take over where, where our job ends. So that's a little insight into the work we do in our law office. And so before we kind of delve into the church's uh, social teaching, um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about kind of like the context of where we are now, as I said before, um, so that we can give a little more concrete once we talk about the, the church's social teaching. Um, so right now, um, in my opinion, we are experiencing what, uh, what some people have called Western uh, dualistic thinking. Um, and that means that rather than seeing options as both A and B, 
a lot of times we see options as either A or B, and they're both mutually exclusive. Um, I think it was Father Richard Rohr that talked about this in one of his, his books. I was listening to a podcast, The Art of Manhood, recently. Um, and he was talking about that. He's saying that, um, that because of this mindset that we have, that everything has to be either or, and, and it's, it's either it's this versus that, and this group versus that group, and this ideology versus that ideology, we're, we're creating this sort of like view of the world that's, that's, that's not integrative. Um, and so in my opinion, this is like just on an ideological perspective, I think this is what we are experiencing um, right now. Um, I think because of that, <clears throat> this either or uh, mentality, a lot of times we can tend to overpolarize things um, and and see people taking extremes uh, more and more. Um, superficial hyperstimulation. Um, this is also perhaps it's, it's as as a result of. Uh, Kind of like the technology and and all of the all of the ways that we are able to stimulate our senses constantly um, and sometimes very superficially um, and it, it it almost seems as though um, in my opinion it almost seems as though that is um, this constant stimulation and this noise and this sort of uh, dependence on like sound bites and sort of like mini mini info uh, snippets um, is is sometimes not allowing us to see like the deeper truths or to see the whole picture. Um, and finally, um, we're also, I think, experiencing a lot of reactive thought versus reflective thought. So a lot of, in my opinion, our, our thought processes are, are very much, you know, we see something, we react to it. And we're looking for the next thing to react. And, and a lot of times we're not taking a lot of, you know, time to just take a step back away from the noise, away from all the react reactivity, and engage in more reflective thought, and just seeing reality for what it really is. And um, so that's my personal opinion. Um, you can agree or disagree, but um, in kind of just kind of thinking about where we are now, um, that's my perception of where we are in terms of how we see reality. Um, but there's also um, good news that we... We live in a country that's very blessed, um, and that um, causes a lot of pull factors, what I would call pull factors, people wanting to come into this, to this country. Um, this country has been built on an, on an, econ an, an economy that is just fabulous. Um, the wisdom of our founding fathers of knowing the nature of humanity and knowing that, you know, sort of pit, setting up a system of checks and balances even economically speaking and politically speaking, has created this really, really stable um, reality. And that stable reality is very attractive to a lot of people that don't have that. The stable economy, we have a stable or a functioning legal system um, as well. Um, in many countries, the legal system is so corrupt that it just does not even work. Um, a lot of times we can we can complain a lot about you know, oh you know the legal system and the political system and everything's so broken and it's so it's it just doesn't work. But really, compared to to other countries, we have a legal system that really protects us. Um, we have laws that really um, can be enforced. And I feel um, like this is really driven home to us when we hear the client stories of people who have fled from other countries because of political systems that are very corrupt. And so, 
for example, just going back to El Salvador again, like the political system there has been very overrun by the gangs. So we have people who say, like, I can't even report a crime to the police and hope that they're going to protect me because the gangs are totally infiltrated. Um, or they've infiltrated the mayor's office or even higher political levels. And so, yes, like the political system here in the United States is by far from perfect. Um, but thank God that we do have something that, for the most part, works and that we can feel safe. And if something happens to us, we can trust that when we call our law enforcement, they are going to come out and protect us. Um, so that was the third one, the law enforcement system. We have a law enforcement system that relatively quickly after you call 911, whether that be for your medical emergency or, or to report a crime, relatively quickly you will have someone show up with the lights and do the report and, and document. Um, uh, that's, that's not the reality in, in many countries. Well, they will call the police and they just will never show up, you know, or, um, or they'll live in areas where they, they, they want to call, you know, someone, but there's no one there. They're, they're, you know, they don't have that infrastructure built into the country to have an emergency response team show up. So um, that's really good news. I mean, that, I mean, that is cause for, for gratitude, um, I think, and, and just kind of like pat on the back, yay, you know. <laughs> um, we're really blessed. We really are uh, to, to live in this country. And sometimes... Um, it takes an outsider to, to, to remind us of how blessed we are um, to be in this country. Well, and the fact that we have such strong pull factors in the United States drawing immigrants in, that is, um, that is like Moises said, a blessing. Because the minute we stop having pull factors in the United States, then we have a problem. Um, so those are the pull factors in the United States. And then we'll also talk about the push factors for migrants coming in. Sarah, do you want to go ahead and just jump in and talk about the push factors? Sure. So the push factors are the factors that are driving people out of their home countries to come into the United States. So on the one hand, people are seeing the fact that the United States is a, 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 has a blessed economy, um, that we have a law enforcement system that works, and a legal system that works. So people are pulled in or drawn in by those pull factors. However, the push factors, what's driving them out of their own countries, are things like seeking to survive. They don't feel like they can have uh, a living wage in their own country to bring up their family or uh, violence, persecution in their own countries that are literally driving them out. So we also have a lot of clients who come to us and they say, I never thought I was going to leave my home country. I had my family business, all of my relatives, my friends, our land, our home. We only left because we had to. We had death threats you know, the gangs told us that we had to leave within 72 hours or they were going to come kill us. And we know they would because we have friends who have been killed or neighbors or cousins or siblings. Um, so the push factors are people seeking to survive and, and people fleeing persecution. And those are the, uh, the negative things. Um, so we have to keep in mind both the pull factors and the push factors when we're having this immigration conversation. Um, and then Moises is also going to talk about the current legal landscape and how that factors into the immigration conversation as well. So the current <clears throat> reality, the current legal landscape um, that uh, we're dealing with. Um, uh, so we have three branches, um, and this is, this is actually an, an enormous blessing. And, and I think we're starting to see how the three bran branches play out. Um, and sometimes it feels like we're in constant conflict, but really... It, it, it's sort of the way that the political system was, was set up, is to have three branches that are sort of always checking each other, and when one branch seems like it wants to go one way, step too far, the other branch reins it in, and vice versa. Um, so we have the executive branch, the president, 
um, we have the uh, judicial branch, um, and um, we have the legislative branch. And so when it comes to immigration, the legislative branch, Congress, um, sets up all of these immigration laws. But a lot of times when these laws were set up, they didn't have the time to think of like every possible scenario. So they'll write a law that's a little general, and then they'll say, okay, we delegate authority to the attorney general to implement this law. And so then the attorney general, part of the executive branch, then has this quasi-legislative authority and they start to implement these laws and to write um, regulations. And so you have like the first layer, Congress, the legislation, and you have the second layer, attorney general slash executive branch, the regulations. And then you also have the judicial branch, which is interpreting a lot of times those laws. Um, and so when it comes to the immigration uh, laws, sometimes they're not as um, stable as we would like for them to be. <laughs> At least me, I'm a lawyer and I have to deal with this every day. And I would love the law to just stay put. But it seems like it's here and then it kind of moves this way and then it kind of moves that way. And then all of a sudden, you know, um, it, it feels like you're kind of chasing, chasing the law sometimes. <laughs> try to pinpoint it, um, to pin it down. Um, but that perhaps is, is a good thing because it, it, it means that our the, the way that our system was set up, it's responsive. It's not just like one law and done, but it's one law, but it's also responsive to the realities. And so that can be a blessing, but it could also be challenging. And, and the, the reality is that, you know, if, if any of you ever want to Google Immigration and Nationality Act and, and read a paragraph just for fun, um, you can see how daunting it can be to understand what the heck they're talking about. Um, because a lot of times the language is like, you know, it, it, it's very, very codey. It almost seems like they're talking in, in code. You know, there's section this and section this, and this will not apply and this will not apply, but only if this applies, then we'll do this. And to the average person, you, you, you have no idea what it's talking about. You have no idea how to follow it. Um, and so what that means is that um, a lot of times it can be difficult for people to A, understand the laws and know how to follow them. But B, it could also be difficult for officers who are charged with enforcing the laws to apply the laws. Sometimes, even, even though, you know, generally speaking, they'll go through some kind of a training process to know what the law is, you know, there will still be gray areas and sometimes there will be contradictory things or, or conflicting parts of the law. And sometimes there will be like, an, like a, just a big gap. You know, you'll, 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 you'll find a situation where you're like, uh, not really addressed by the law, what do we do here? Um, so of course the executive branch also has these um, agencies, all the immigration agencies, and they have administrative powers to administer the laws and when there's a gray area, they do the best that they can. They try to come up with a solution through some kind of an official policy. Um, so that's um, that's the landscape. And then, because Congress uh, writes the statutes, um, lately it's been it's more and more difficult for Congress to agree, you know, to to sort of do an immigration rewriting process, you know, an immigration overhaul, an immigration update. Um, so because of that. We have been having um, some pretty, pretty long backlogs for certain categories um, of immigrants. And so the way that Congress uh, designed the immigration system to work 
is they kind of divided the world into different areas, and they said, well, we want a certain number of immigrants from this area of the world, and a certain number of immigrants from this area, and a certain number from this, so on and so forth. And um, so that means that for certain areas, they're, they're going to experience uh, long delays, um, because the number of people coming in from that area of the world may be very, very big, but the number of visas available for that year is not enough. And, and sometimes the line keeps getting longer and longer and longer to the point where you're looking at 25 years or more of, of, uh, of wait times for certain categories. It's not all categories, but it's for certain categories. It depends on, on a, lot of, a lot of things, a lot of factors. Um, so that's kind of like the current legal um, reality that we're dealing with with the immigration process. Well, and just an interesting fact, the last time that Congress actually passed any significant kind of immigration reform was in 1996. So that was 23 years ago. And since then, the immigration climate has changed a lot, but the laws in the United States have not changed to keep up with the current climate. So an issue that we're seeing right now is there really needs to be um, an overhaul to address the current uh, immigration climate, but we haven't had that yet. So that is also a factor in some of the conflict that we see and people hear about in the media of like, well, the, this is happening at the border and then the government's trying to respond to it, but it's more of a reaction because the response has to go through Congress and nothing's happened in Congress in a long time. Um, so that's where we're at on the, the legal landscape side. Um, we want to transition a little bit now into talking about what does the church teach with all of this. So on the political and legal side, things can be super polarized. You hear Democrats versus Republican and pro-immigrant versus anti-immigrant. And where do we even stand as Catholics on all of this? Um, well, the good news is the church, as the good mother that she is, gives us directives, guidelines. We don't have to try to figure this out on our own. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit now about what the roots of the Catholic social teaching on immigration are um, and what that looks like. And we're going to start with an, a really awesome quote that Moises will read from a, an organization called Clinic. Uh, that's the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, and they provide a lot of pro bono or free legal assistance to immigrants needing help. And so this right here, we think, sums up Catholic social teaching on immigration very well. So it's very, it's very dense, it, um, and we're, we're going to go ahead and unpack uh, what this means, but I'm just going to read it because it's, it's really good. <laughs> um, so it says, Catholic social teaching identifies the Holy Family um, in their flights to Egypt as the archetype of every refugee family. Jesus identified with newcomers. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. So that in the Catholic tradition, newcomers image God. It identifies the church itself as a pilgrim church. Catholic teaching views migration not as a divisive phenomenon, but an occasion to build the human family. It recognizes a range of human rights for newcomers based on their God-given dignity that extends far beyond those recognized by individual nations or international bodies. Finally, it teaches that civil authority draws its legitimacy from protecting and defending human rights and the common good of the entire human family. In this context, service to newcomers constitutes an obligation to persons of faith, not an option. So it's maybe if you if you read this and you're like, man, this just seems like very, very one-sided, you know, like it's all about the immigrants, like they have all the rights, what about us? Um, 
disclaimer, that's, that's not the case. Um, we're going to talk a little later about uh, what are the three balancing principles of the social teaching. And it also does talk about um, the stability of the nation, that as natives, we also have a right to have a stable nation and to not have it be completely destabilized you know, by sort of just opening the doors to anybody and everybody that wants to come and having everything kind of fall apart. Um, that said, it, it does seem to um, perhaps um, challenge at times uh, our notion that, um, that we can just sort of worry about ourselves and let everybody else worry about themselves. And, and that's, that's, I think that's a theme that you're going to start to see with the social teaching is that um, the Catholic Church really with the mind of Christ wants us to think about us, not just me, but really to think about us, and not just us here in this room, but us in this nation, and us in the world, and to really see, um, you know, a human family, if, if you will. So, um, so I'm going to talk a little about, about the biblical roots, um, uh, starting with the Old Testament. Um, these are some of the roots that the Catholic social teaching is based on. So in the Old Testament, there is a biblical tradition of special care um, towards three um, vulnerable populations. And you'll see that a lot of times it's like these three populations, they're talked about a lot um, in, with regards to, you know, you know, don't abuse them, don't um, take advantage of them, you know, treat them well, take care of them. And those three categories are orphans, widows, and strangers. Sometimes the word is used that is used as aliens um, or foreigners. Or foreigners. But it makes sense because um, you know, back in those days, and perhaps even today, those were three categories of people that didn't have like the social kind of power to sort of assert their own rights, and it was very easy for people to take advantage of them um, uh, or, or to mistreat them. And um, so in the biblical tradition, you will have um, uh, specific scriptures. And I'll read one from Leviticus. Um, it says, You shall treat the alien who resides with you no differently than the natives born among you. Have the same love for him as for yourself. For you too were once aliens in the land of Egypt. Um, that's from Leviticus 19.33. And so this is... Um, uh, Kind of like a, a directive, or really, you shall. It's, it's a command to to uh, the Jewish nation um, to sort of remember their own journey. You know, if you recall their journey, you know they were sometimes all over the place, and then they were they were captive. Um, they were sometimes in exile, um, and then they were scattered, and then they were regathered. So they, the, the the Jewish nation also has a long history of knowing what it feels like to be the foreigner, to be the alien, to be the, the, um, the immigrant, I guess. Um, even though the word immigrant, I don't think you will ever find it in scripture. Um, because scripture, back then, they were really referred to as either aliens, foreigners, or... Stranger. Um, Stranger. Strangers, yeah. Well, and I think also it's very uh, insightful how Leviticus is calling the Hebrew people to think of their own roots. 
as when they were aliens in Egypt. And I think that this is also um, a good reminder for us to think of our own roots, right? Because somewhere along our generational history way back when, there were immigrant roots in every family. Um, so in Moises' case, he's born and raised here in the United States, but his parents are immigrants. They had to become citizens in order to live in this country. Um, and Spanish was his first language. So his immigrant roots are much closer. For my family, it's several generations more removed, um, but my great-great-grandparents were immigrants here from Germany and Slovakia and Hungary, right? And so if we go up our family tree somewhere, we will find immigrant roots. And so we also have to remember, as we talk about immigration, sometimes it can feel very removed because we don't feel like it's super personal if we aren't first-generation immigrants. But I think it's helpful for us to remember, just like the Hebrew people are reminded in Leviticus, remember your own immigrant roots. And um, to uh, quote, quote another uh, verse from uh, Deuteronomy, um, just in terms of like how much how concerned God was um, with, again, those three vulnerable populations, the orphan, the widow, the, the stranger. Um, here's one from Deuteronomy 24. When you reap the harvest in your field and overlook a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. Let it be for the resident alien, the orphan, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. <clears throat> so that's just a little very broad stroke of the the roots from the Old Testament. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the, the New Testament. Um, <clears throat> um, the, the one that is most often um, talked about in the New Testament, um, or, or I like to talk about it when I give this talk, is Matthew 25, 40. Um, and, and that's when Jesus was, uh, was talking about, you know, in the, the, you know, after we die, and, and, and he, he uses this analogy separate the goats from the sheep um, and and then he he goes on to to say you know to those that didn't do certain things you know you guys are the goats <laughs> you don't get to come in and to those that did do certain things you guys are the sheep you know welcome and what are some of those things so so this one it's familiar for I was hungry and you gave me food I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you welcomed me um, and you know, if you read the whole the whole context of that, um, to the goats he's saying, "I was hungry, but you did not give me food. I was thirsty, but you did not give me drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me." Um, and so, right there, I mean, it's oftentimes I've read that I've read that, and I've heard that at mass. I mean, maybe we have heard it at mass many times. And for some reason, the stranger part has always just kind of <laughs> gone over my head. You know, I don't know what he's talking about. Um, stranger, like, what is a stranger? Well, yeah, a stranger could be um, a neighbor, you know, it could be someone at school. It could be, you know, it could also be an immigrant. Um, and um, there's, a, there's, a, there's another verse from Galatians um, where... You know, in Jesus' ministry uh, and in Jesus' time, and, you know, he, he was always, he was trying to remind people of kind of like the bigger picture. And there's all these squabbles, you know, like, you know, the Gentiles versus the Jews and the scribes, the Pharisees and the this sect versus that sect and the Sadducees. And, the, um, and Jesus was always like, guys, just like, <laughs> we're, we're one family. 
Um, and there, there's, there's this verse from Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor is there slave nor free person. There is not male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Not to say that there aren't real differences, you know, but trying to emphasize the unity. And so from that Old Testament and New Testament, um, you put it all together, and the church throughout the years, um, various popes, um, and the U.S. Catholic Conference of Catholic Bishops um, have come up with these sort of three guiding principles for what is what, what is the church's social teaching on immigration. And Sarah, take it away. All right, so the three principles that the church gives us uh, to keep in mind when we're talking about immigration and how we should view it from a Catholic perspective. Uh, first, people have a right to migrate. Um, so this is based on the fact, uh, the biblical and ancient Christian principles, that the goods of the earth belong to all people. Um, so we can't claim that we have a right over the goods of the earth. Um, we do have a right to private property, but we also um, have an equal right to basic human necessities. And this is food, clothing, shelter, education, medical care, religion, expression of culture. So these are the goods of the land that we share in common with others. So we can't claim that those are our private properties. Um, in other places, in other countries where people live in fear uh, or danger or dehumanizing poverty, they do have a right to migrate to find a better life for themselves and their families. So that's the first principle. People have a right to migrate. Um, the second principle, however, balances that. And the second principle is that a country also has the right to regulate its borders and to control immigration. <laughs> That's a typo. A country Probably has a right. <laughs> um, a country does have a right to regulate its borders. Um, and so, for example, in developed nations like we live in here in the U.S., we experience a lot of pressure from people coming from other countries who are more impoverished, who have political instability, um, who have more violence, people fleeing those countries who want to resettle here in the United States. So Catholic social teaching is realistic. They see that while people do have the right to migrate, at the same time, no country has the duty to receive so many immigrants that its social and economic life is destroyed. Now, the third principle um, puts both of those in uh, perspective, and that is that a country must regulate its borders with justice and mercy. So on the justice side, uh, a country must protect its homeland. Can keep in mind... Uh, a strong economy, and protecting a social system. Um, the mercy side means helping our neighbors. So uh, our <laughs> law enforcement and our legal system is supposed to have these two principles in mind, both the justice to protect the homeland and the mercy to help our neighbors. Um, now this is where it gets a little tricky, right? Because where is that balance? Where is the balance between justice and mercy? Now I think as Catholics, um, we can see that it shouldn't be an either or. It's not just justice or just mercy. Um, it's a both and. So like Moises was saying at the beginning, we need to take a step away from the dualistic thinking that says, oh, it has to be either or. And we have to start realizing, well, an integrative approach means that it's both. It's both justice and mercy. Um, so you might hear people come up with, common objections to immigration because they think that it is um, going to put our country at harm, right? So you might hear people say, well, immigrants are just stealing all of our jobs. 
that's a common one that I hear people sort of just throw out there. Um, a statistic, just so you all know, is that right now in the United States of America, there are 7 million open jobs. There are only 6 million job seekers of working age in the United States, which means there's a surplus of 1 million jobs in the United States, um, more jobs than there are job seekers. Another statistic is that right now our agricultural system in the United States relies heavily on immigrant workers. So just think for a moment, I don't know if any of you have ever aspired to go be a picker in a field, pick fruits and vegetables by hand. Um, those jobs are filled primarily by immigrant workers. How about cleaning manure out of cow stalls in a farm? My uncle's a farmer in Wisconsin and the workers who come seeking that job to clean out the stalls and help them milk cows are immigrant workers. And that's because a lot of immigrant workers are seeking those heavy labor jobs in the agricultural system that most Native Americans, they aren't pursuing those for their lifelong profession. So there is a need for jobs in the United States that immigrants are filling that Native-born Americans aren't seeking to fill at the same rate. So on an economic level, we have a need for immigration. Um, another interesting point is right now in the United States, um, we don't have a uh, birth replacement rate. So most people in the United States, native-born Americans, they're not getting married and they're not having children at a replacement rate for the number of people who are dying. So right now, it's keeping things like our social security system afloat so that it's not tanking from the lack of people paying into it from native-born Americans are the immigrants who are coming here, who are working, who are paying into social security, and it's actually helping keep our economy afloat. So those are just some things to think about um, when we're talking about uh, where our country is economically speaking in regards to immigration. And just to kind of tie everything, trying to tie everything back, um, what does this all mean? You know, so like all this whole social, social teaching, you know, about immigration and, and having to balance things, what is it really all pointing to? It's pointing to the fundamental truth of the Catholic faith. Um, and everything around the Catholic faith is built around this fundamental truth. And the, the truth is that God is a loving Father. And if you look at the entire scripture and you look at everything and all the, the Catholic, you know, like philosophy and all the Catholic social teachings and everything, it really comes back to God is a loving father. And as a loving father, he want, he, like, he, there's nothing that we can do that will make him stop loving us. So it, if we're sinners, he still loves us. If we're from this clique or that clique or that nation or that other nation or born this way or born that way, he still loves us. And so... I think that's the great news that we can take from the Catholic social teaching is that it's really all based on this amazing truth that is embedded in everything that we do as Catholics, which is that God is a loving father. So I, I am a father and, and my three-year-old and my one-year-old don't always get along <laughs> and I'm trying to teach them, you know, I'm trying to teach them to share, I'm trying to teach them to, um, that it's not all about just them, <laughs> even though sometimes they think it is. Um, and sometimes I wonder if, if we're in the same journey, you know? If we, we also need to remind it that, you know, when God blesses us with something, 
Um, it, you know, if we just hold on to that blessing and we're just like, oh, just for me, not going to share it with anybody else, you know, and we just start turning on ourselves, that can start to become very destructive. Um, and it's when we are thankful and grateful for God's blessings and we share God's blessings with others that those blessings start to become, in a mysterious way, uh, multiplied. And, you know, the famous prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, it is in giving that we receive. Um, and sometimes, sometimes we can forget that. Um, I've had my own journey with this whole immigration uh, thing, you know, being the son of immigrants and everything like that. I, I actually didn't want to do immigration law. I, um, I studied chemistry, and uh, I wanted to be an intellectual property lawyer because um, that kind of went along with chemistry. And then I took a class, and it bored me to death. <laughs> um, and I think that if I'm honest with myself, the side of immigration that was not very attractive to me was you know, this side of like, well, like, how am I going to make money if I'm serving the poor? <laughs> you know? You know? Um, and somehow God has provided. Um, and eventually, you know, eventually I, I discerned that, that I really was called to serve immigrants um, and to hopefully be a face where they can encounter God, even though I know that I fail <laughs> many times. Um, but at least, you know, we can try, right? We can try to be that face where if, if God can use us as vessels for immigrants to encounter him through us, maybe God could also use immigrants as vessels so that we can encounter him through them. And I think if we have that kind of an attitude towards this immigration mess, as everybody likes to call it an immigration mess, you know, um, and yes, it is a mess, but it's also kind of like a blessed mess. You know, everybody wants to come here because this is, this is a blessed country. It's a blessed mess. It really is. Um, so what is, the, what is the path forward? Um, the path forward and the challenge is to... The path forward is, is Jesus, really, <laughs> is, is what it comes down to. Um, to embrace the mind of Christ. Um, and... What does that mean? To, to stop thinking of, of the world as us, as us versus them, this versus that, and, and to just really focus on that truth that God is a loving Father and everything comes from that. Our identity comes from that. You know, our responsibilities to others come, come from that. Um, and that not everything is life in, in life is either or. There's, there's, you know, there's the cross and the resurrection. There's denying yourself and in doing so, finding your true self. Is there are these paradoxes? I think it was Chesterton. Maybe I'm, I'm misquoting. I, I love quoting people, and then sometimes. But I think it was Chesterton that said that all truth at the core is a paradox. And Jesus was full of these paradoxes, where he was constantly saying things that sounded contradictory, but really, they were not. They were just. They were very balanced. Um, to embrace the heart of Christ, you know, to embrace that that um, that heart for the whole of humanity, and especially, you know, especially for those that are suffering. Jesus had a very special heart for the suffering. Um, a lot of times, I feel like in today's age, we can suffer internally. We can suffer a lot of anxiety, a lot of insecurity, and I think we can all take comfort in the fact that, hey, you know, Christ, he has a heart for us. He is that much closer. Many saints have talked about that, like, you know, 
the more you suffer, the closer you are to to Christ. And maybe it's because He's getting closer to you because He has this heart, um, especially for those that are that are suffering. Um, and embracing the Church of Christ, um, embracing these uh, social teachings that help us, that guide us. They're very focused. They're not, you know, they're not all about just just let everybody in or kick everybody out. It's it's how can we have justice and mercy. Um, and so, um, so now the question that might be in everybody's yeah. mind is, okay, so what next? Um, the good news is the. Uh, the Catholic bishops have come up with some suggestions for what could be next with immigration. Um, one of those suggestions is that people who are here but don't have documented status, however, they are contributing upright moral citizens of society, um, that there could be a path to earned legalization for these people. Um, so the bishops suggest that there be some sort of penalty for having um, come into the country without legal documentation. Um, but then after these people pay some sort of penalty, there be a path to earned legalization so that they can continue being contributing members of society as they already are. That's their suggestion for people who are here. Uh, they also suggest that there be a future worker program. So like I mentioned before, we do have a need for immigrant workers in this country. So it would be helpful if Congress were to establish some sort of immigrant worker program that provides more visas for immigrants to come legally and fulfill those jobs that need immigrant workers. Um, the bishops also suggest a family-based immigration reform. Um, Moises mentioned that for some categories in certain countries, there are huge wait lines some of them being like 20, 25 years for certain family members to be able to come here. Um, so the bishops also suggest that family-based immigration reform um, be updated to reflect the needs from different countries in order for greater family unification to happen. Um, bishops also suggest that there be a restoration of due process rights. Um, so, for example, certain penalties that are over harsh for uh, what they are trying to punish. There are certain uh, like three-year bars or ten-year bars to people who have broken an immigration law that the bishops say they're really too harsh for what they're trying to punish. So the, the punishment should always be in proportion to the crime. So the bishops are saying do away with over harsh punishments in proportion to the crime and make sure that all penalties are proportionate to the crime that they're penalizing. Um, also, addressing root causes. So we talked about the push factors. What is happening in other countries that's pushing people here to come to the U.S., people who wouldn't even want to come otherwise? Um, so as a body of Christ, as a church, how can we talk about uh, addressing those root causes so that people don't feel forced to flee their home countries. Um, and finally, the bishops talk about enforcement, uh, that the United States does have a legitimate role uh, to intercept unauthorized immigrants who attempt to cross the border, um, that the United States does um, have the right to enforce our immigration laws, but at the same time that the United States should increase the lawful means for people to come here so that people are not using unlawful means. Um, so that's sort of the framework that the bishops give uh, to address some of the legal issues uh, causing problems with immigration. But I think a question that also comes to my mind is, well, okay, what about us? 
what can we do that would actually have any sort of impact on this whole conversation, on the whole immigration landscape? Um, and I would love, in a minute, we're going to open up for questions. If any of you have ideas, please share them. Um, please enrich us as the body of Christ. We want this to be a little bit of a conversation, too. But just some ideas that come to mind, like how often do I start up a conversation with somebody that I don't know but maybe looks lonely, and I say, hey, what's your name? I'm Sarah, and just strike up that conversation. Like, whether they're an immigrant or not, maybe they're feeling like a stranger, and um, just a welcome can go a long way. Um, or even, I think, in the Catholic Church, we have a lot of, like, different cultural segments. We have Hispanic ministry and Polish ministry and the Filipino ministry and, and whatnot, and those are all very good and necessary in the church. But I also think that we should work to have um, more connection between the different cultural ministries in the church and not feel like, oh, well, uh, I'm not that nationality, so I can't go to their mass or their celebration. Like, yes, go, be part of the universality of the church. Um, so those are just a few ideas that come to mind. Um, and then... And since we are in the... Is this the John Paul II yep. Center? Um, We'll end with this exhortation, one of my favorite exhortations from John Paul, St. John Paul II. Um, do not be afraid. Um, and I think that's what we want to end with is, is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take that next step, whatever that next step may be, um, whether that be in your journey of faith, in your spiritual journey, um, or perhaps you know, there may be a call to learn more about the, about the issue. Um, do not be afraid. And um, why don't we end with a prayer, and then we'll open it up uh, for questions. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to um, maybe just scratch the surface um, on this uh, very rich um, topic. We just pray that you may uh, give all of us the grace uh, that we need wherever we are in our journey, Lord, um, maybe we're the ones feeling like strangers. We pray that um, you may assure our hearts of your love. And, and may the fruits of that be an outpouring of your love for others as well, um, especially most vulnerable and the strangers. Amen. Amen.